How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Eucalypt Speed Test Intelligence Data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. Searching for a parenting podcast you'll actually want to listen to? One that covers everything from how to deal with picky eating, how to grieve a pregnancy loss, and how to not hate your partner after having kids? Well, your new favorite podcast, After Bedtime with Big Little Feelings, is here. Hosted by two BFFs, this is a no-shame parenting podcast. Listen to and follow After Bedtime with Big Little Feelings on the free Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. We we welcome our buddy Chris Cuomo from Cuomo on News Nation, 7 p.m. St. Louis time. Chris, uh, always great to have you back, my friend. You want to be in the show? Come on, baby, let's go. Just like the song you were playing as the intro to this segment. Uh, office service comes with responsibility, and one of the responsibilities is transparency. Outlets now that allow partisans to only choose safe harbors and to only speak when they want. And that is not the job. You're 100% right. I'm glad you agree. I didn't know how you would uh, see that one, but I'm glad you agree. Um, so, Chris, I know you said that last night was a watershed moment. I, I I watched the whole damn thing. I couldn't look away. I watched every minute of McCarthy's speech. I was uh, moved by it, not like emotionally, just the, the what's happening with our country, with our government has just really affected me. I'm not going to say as much as January 6th did, but like in it hit me in the same place in my stomach. Not me. One, uh, he made his bid. Okay. All I want is fairness and an opportunity to succeed or fail on your own merits. He made a bad deal with a group of kooks when he had too slim a margin to survive it. He reduced the threshold to vacating to any single representative. And that's exactly what happened. Now, what I don't like about it is, one, look, the Democrats were all in to create as much chaos for the Republicans as possible. Yeah. Uh, now, look, that's the game. But remember, the Democrats are making the case of the American people in this election cycle that they're better than what they oppose. Uh, this is not that. So here's what I want. Let's move past the drama. This is the first time it ever happened. Well, whatever. Everything's going to happen for the first time at some point. Here's what should happen. You ready for my idea? Let's hear it. This is, this is what happens when I fish all day and catch nothing. I only have time to think. So. Joe Biden, president of the United States, contacts congressional leadership on both sides, says, come to the House, free meal. At the House, he says, listen, uh, here's what I suggest. Democrats will give their votes to work with Republicans to pick a reasonable speaker so that you don't get jammed up with another kook, um, which is the way they're headed. I wouldn't be surprised. If you don't hear Trump getting a lot of votes, uh, the audience should know you don't have to be an elected member of Congress to be Speaker of the House. Why? It's a loophole in the Constitution. Uh, he has been nominated before. So is Biden. Neither obviously got close to a majority, but they may head down that road. I think this is a great opportunity for the president to say, listen, here's the deal. The Democrats are going to give you their votes. Pick a reasonable person, OK, who wants to do deals. Give the Democrats presence on every committee and some staff. You can be the chairs because you have 
the majority. But just like McConnell said uh, during Merrick Garland, it's too soon. It's too close. Uh, this is not the best way to fulfill the mandate of, of the public's vote. Let's do that now. Give Democrats more inclusion. Let's get a speaker who will make some deals. Let's make some deals and let me help insulate you from crazy. That's what should happen. Jeffries and Schumer should be quiet and listen to the president and the Republicans should be reasonable and pull themselves back from the precipice of a chasm of crazy, which is where they are right now. Chris, how far back in history would you have to go for that to have a chance of actually happening? Reagan, when the two parties made deals all the time, there was power sharing in different ways all the time. There was collegiality in the interest of getting things done all the time. This is new. With the advent of social media and the ability to create cottage enterprises of extreme thought and people being able to be distracted by things that look like real platforms that aren't, the parties being in a battle of attrition, mostly on the right in my estimation, but again, uh, open to disagreement and interpretation, where problems work better than solutions and saying that the other side is scary is more effective than saying that you have ways to fix. That's where we are. I pinpoint it specifically on the two-party system. This is all a binary choice can bring you. Uh, it was just the question of when. This is why Washington, Monroe, Teddy Roosevelt, Madison, Hamilton all bashed the two-party system and said it was a mistake for us. Uh, so I think that we have done better than this. I think we can do better than this, but you must incentivize better than this. We keep rewarding them for being POSs and just playing to the bottom. So, Chris, whether it is through uh, secret contacts or just your gut, how many people in Congress who if they heard your idea would secretly, even to themselves, say, man, that would be great. That would honestly be great if we could do that. If we could, yes. 85 percent. Um, we should probably 12 percent on the Republican side. Why? Well, look what happened to McCarthy. Yeah. He did the only reasonable thing with the debt ceiling. People don't understand the debt ceiling because it's always manipulated. The debt ceiling is to pay for what you already spent. It has nothing to do with future spending. It is not the time to talk future spending. That is extortion if you do that. And you will hurt the U.S. credit rating, and all of us won't be able to borrow money the same way we do now if that happens. So McCarthy had to make a deal with Biden to do the debt ceiling. It is the only responsible thing to do. And they punished him for it. And that is a sign of crazy. Now, remember, you can't paint with one brush because the GOP is a victim of its own minority right now. That's yeah. what happened yesterday. Chris, we had a, a, a guest on a couple hours ago. His uh, his name is Kesar. He is a professor at Harvard in the JFK School. And he brought up a very simple, very non-academic uh, thought that kind of took us all by surprise. We we're talking about January 6th and how close did we come and fake electors and all this stuff. And he said, guys, you have to remember that, yes, the Constitution, it's four corners and, and it's, a, it's a document. But he said there was a great deal of just compassion and sportsmanship that was assumed when they ratified the Constitution that, hey, we're going to treat each other fairly. And now that that's out the window, it's a different ballgame. I, I hadn't really thought of it in those terms. Yeah, look, I think it's about degree. 
I think that they've been doing this from the beginning. We've had different offshoot party manipulations, um, you know, the, the bull moose, the know-nothings. Uh, there was a great reformation of our political system to get away from sectarianism. We have been in this struggle um, since jump. But remember, one, we're young, okay? Two, nobody else is doing what we're doing on the planet, okay? This is an experiment. There is no other society that is as diverse as ours, that is developing its own culture and political culture and does not fall back on hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years of how it's done. Mm -hmm. So I am not so quick to say that this is a monster of a completely new breed. I don't believe that. I believe it's about degree. Uh, and this has been where we've been headed. The question is, how do you get to a better place? And I think we've discussed this before, but I still see only two paths. One of them is horrible, which is extraordinary, um, completely devouring crisis, like war or a humongous terror attack or something 10 times worse than COVID, where you literally don't have time for the game. Mm -hmm. You can only deal with reality on its terms, which we're not doing now. We're making problems for ourselves now. We're creating issues to distract from the real issues that they don't want to have to be measured by in terms of whether or not they can solve them. This is easier. LGBTQ and, and worrying about whether or not the books and the brains and what they're going to do to your kid in school is easier than saying, here's how uh, we're going to fix immigration. Here's how we're going to fix our trade and craftsman worker deficit. They don't want to deal with that. Too hard. This is easier. People do what's easy. So that's one thing, extreme crisis. The other way is an overpowering message and messenger that takes us in a better direction. We've seen both of those in our history. Mm -hmm. I hope that we see the latter, not the former. Another watershed moment is that if we are Biden v. Trump, I think it's the last time you ever see two old men who are past their best, mm -hmm. past their prime, running for office. I yeah. think we have had enough of it. Chris, do you, like the fact that we're looking at a rematch of Trump-Biden – do you think that we just fell asleep at the wheel and the cogs were turning and everyone's like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is going to happen again? Or is this by design? This is what I think happens when an engine is grinding to a halt, when it's overheated and the lubrication breaks down. And the tolerances between the metal parts start to heat up and break down. They start to wear on each other and wear on each other and eventually grinds to a halt and you blow your engine. That's what's happening. These a lot of people who are great, who, you know, in your own lives, don't want to get involved in politics. It's too toxic. It's too dirty. The people who win are the loudest and who destroy others. And, you know, every all the wrong things are being rewarded. So Biden v. Trump Biden is a, you know, he is a last resort for the Democrats. And now because he beat Trump, he's got the only credential that they're really worried about. Make no mistake. The Democrats can say as much as they want about hoping that Biden, uh, Trump goes away. They want Trump in the election. They want to run against Trump because they believe they can beat him like they did the last time. Chris, the so, the world is very different than uh, I started my show in 2000. So it's pre 9-11, it's pre social media, and it's pre 24 hour news. Uh, and the world is very different. Would you say that our job, that the media is a cause or an enabler of where we are now? Both. Uh, the media is a mirror. 
Uh, and first of all, look, you got to look at it different ways. One is, uh, look, it's a business. And like every other business, every other organization, every other human uh, you know, com- composed entity, you're going to have good and bad. And you have to forum shop like you do with every other business. Not all gas stations are the same. And it's not just the gas station. It's the person pumping the gas. And it's what time you go there. This is all true about the media as well. However, I believe and I'm look, it's not like I'm going to blindly say the media is perfect. Certainly my own life, my own experience has proven uh, that there can be a lot of things that happen in the media that I'm not uh, a big fan of. But the media is not your problem. The media is a mirror. If the American people wanted nothing but stories about solutions in America, that's all you would get. If you only want stories about football players who have brain injuries, that's all you'll get. If you watch my show tonight a lot, like the ratings spike tomorrow morning, when we get the first set of fast nationals, we see the numbers. We're going to wait as soon as we can and pay money to get minute-by-minute breakdowns, at least quarter-by-quarter, quarter of the hour show. And whatever did well, there's a really good chance I'm going to do something like it again. Yeah. So it's a mirror of what the American people watch. Can't argue. Sadly, can't argue. Uh, tonight, 7 p.m. St. Louis time, Cuomo on News Nation. Check out the other shows uh, as well. Chris, it's always great, always enlightening. Have a great night. We'll talk to you next week. I got Christie and Burchett, Governor Christie tonight, to talk about what this means for his party, and Burchett to talk about why he voted against McCarthy. And it is a really wild story. It has nothing to do with politics. I don't know how much I like Burchett, but I liked listening to him talk last night. Uh, he seems like a straight shooter, at least. He's got that folksy Southern charm. Mm-hmm. I have not had occasion yet to call BS on him. And you may say, well, that's a low bar. No, it isn't. <laughs> All right, Chris. We'll talk to you next week. Have a great show. All right. Take care and thank you for the opportunity. 424 DGS. I guess I'm just in a bad, cranky mood today, but let's just keep going. Um, there's a story all over about this 11-year-old kid who had some sort of a beef with a couple others from a football team or some such. And there's video of it, and he goes to a car. He pulls out a gun. He points the gun at both of them and shoots them both. Wow. And uh, I had to have heard it here in KMOX or some national news or something, but the, whoever the reporter was said, and clearly an 11-year-old can't understand or appreciate the nature of what they're doing. I disagree with that. I do, too. Um, I understand there's a difference between uh, minors and adults. I understand there's a difference between a three-year-old and a, a 16-year-old. Uh, but an 11-year-old is not like a three-year-old toddler who doesn't know what a gun is and their idiot parent has it sitting on the coffee table <clears throat> and they pick it up and it fires and it hurts them or someone else. An 11-year-old knows what a gun is. When you see the video, this 11-year-old is fighting with these kids, goes to the SUV, pulls out the gun, turns around, points it, bang, bang, shoots them, and then has to be restrained from shooting other people. Yeah. Whatever happens with that within the justice, you know, due process, that 11-year-old doesn't need to be with other people. You see what I'm saying? 
whether it is uh, juvenile or it's a home or it's psychiatric care or it's some sort of detention, I'm okay with an 11-year-old being taken from their parents and going somewhere else when they just shot two people. Agree, disagree? I think that's pretty fair. I mean, it's I, I'm not saying like lock them up, throw the way the key, throw away the key forever. I think an 11 year old stands a chance to be rehabilitated in a situation like this. But there should definitely be a punishment. And I don't I don't get this whole hands off like he had no idea what he was doing. Once you shoot person number one and turn to person number two, you know what you're doing. You saw what you just did. So there has to be consequences for that. I mean, I, I'd also argue that the parents should be prosecuted. Yeah, what if was that the gun is not secure, with a gun? That gun is not secure. It is not in a safe place. It is some place where an 11-year-old could get it in a fit of rage in seconds. You are not securing that weapon. That's not safe management of a firearm. And obviously, the kid knows right where it is. He goes right to the spot. Why does your kid know that you have a gun in the car and where it is? Sorry, if they know that, that's on you. And if they shoot somebody, you are also responsible. And look, it's just a true statement. I had lots of fights with friends growing up. The thought would have never crossed my mind. So I think the society's different. We're way more shooty. And I also think that an 11-year-old that would do that is different, whether it's nature or nurture. But it is ridiculous of us to ignore that. And just give a blanket statement of, well, clearly 11-year-olds don't understand the nature of their conduct. So Mm -hmm. that's not true. That's just not true. Don't put them in real man prison. Don't put, like Raid said, throw away the key. But something should happen. Something serious should happen. You know, you just shot two people. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we need to talk to Mickey Dolenz. Get me out of this mood. (laughs) Welcome back, guys. DGS in the next segment. Going to give you part one of our interview with Mickey Dolenz from the uh, Monkees. And who else to lead into that but Matt Pauly. Uh Did you just call me so somebody looks like a monkey? No. Okay. no you, I watched that. Uh, hey, hey, we're the monkeys. Yeah. yeah back, Nick at night back in the day. Mm-hmm. I love that show. I didn't know that was on back then. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, congratulations. Very proud of you. You're getting, And we talked about it. You getting called up to fill in for Ricky Horton, best guy in the world, next to John Rooney, calling a Cardinals game for the major leagues, I think literally is like a ball player getting called up from AAA to play as a broadcaster. I I don't know what that would feel like for a ball player, but I know how that felt like for me. Tell us the story. So I got the Ben Boyd manager of the radio network had given me an indication the night before that maybe there was a chance they might have to call me up. Uh, I didn't think it was going to happen, really. I just appreciated them even thinking of me. That was pretty cool. And then the next morning, about 1030, I get the phone call. Hey, we we need you to do this game. We need you to get to Milwaukee tonight. So I just jumped in my car. I drove the, the six-plus hours to Milwaukee. Uh, I got to American Family Field at about 5 o'clock for a 640 game. My AC in my car stinks. I walked in sweating like you would think somebody who drove six hours without AC would sweat. And, uh, yeah, I got in there, and I, I did it, and I ended up doing four games, and it was uh, it was pretty amazing. How long – because I, I heard you. I was very impressed. I, I wasn't shocked because you're a professional. But how long did it take you to go, okay, 
I know what I'm doing. I'm okay here. It was the second game. And th- John Rooney was so good to work with. If he wouldn't have been as amazing as he was, I don't know if I ever would have gotten somewhat comfortable. Now, there were still things that I was doing even the fourth game that I'm thinking, I'm better than this. Yeah. But I haven't done it full-time in eight years. Yeah, mm-hmm. I did 10 years of minor league baseball play-by-play, but my career had kind of evolved away from it over the last few years. And I, I didn't know if it was ever going to happen, if I was ever going to get that kind of opportunity. But once I got into the second game, there were some times where it started to feel good. Yeah. So it reminds me of comedy because I've never done play-by-play, but I've done stand-up comedy. And I've heard the greats in play-by-play. Mm-hmm. I've seen the greats in comedy. And one thing I think they all share is a, a certain amount of just relaxed, zen, we're just having a conversation here, no big deal. Now, whether they are or not, they give you that vibe. And that's it's, that's always seemed like a thing that you have to have to be a great broadcaster, great play-by-play, or color guy, is just the ability to relax and make everyone out there listening relax. Yeah, I think so. And I, I try to be conversational in everything that I do. Now, there's a point, if there's a big play, you, you snap the finger and you, and you call the play. Yeah. And obviously, that's not conversational. Uh, but all the other stuff that's going on, the stories that you're telling, setting the scene, all those sort of things, yeah, it's got to be very easy to listen to. And what's easy to listen to is a, is a conversation. Yeah. I love that on your drive up there, you got 20 miles from Milwaukee and realized you had driven in complete silence. <laughs> well, yeah. I sound like a, a serial killer or something, <laughs> yeah. but I drove five and a half hours and never once turned on the radio <laughs> as I was just so locked in on... A, I got to get there, and B, oh my God, this yeah. is happening. So I get to go into the booth uh, three, four times a year, and I'm like a little kid. I mean, I'm just a, like a little kid. For you, being in the booth officially, what were some of the cooler things that just happened where you're like, I'm never going to forget this? I think it was sitting back and realizing the people who have been in that booth before. The that Cardinals radio to me is the pinnacle of broadcasting. That's how I was brought up growing up in this city. My dad working here at Camelx in the 60s and working with Cardinal Broadcast. Like there's there's nothing bigger than Cardinals radio and there's nothing bigger than the people who have done Cardinals radio. So it was four days as a fill-in. I was sitting in other people's seats for a few days. Uh, but to do that and to be on that short list of people who have ever done it, that's the cool part. Yeah, absolutely. Did you view the game differently? As opposed to like you're sitting at home and you're watching the game when you're up there on that perch, like did you did you view it, feel it differently? I don't think so. I think I always watch the game the same way because uh, I'm at all these games yeah. anyway. So I'm always watching the game from up there. All those years of broadcasting games in the mind, the, the game's the same. Game's faster at the big big league level. But you know when I was doing South Georgia Peanuts baseball and <laughs> Evansville Otters baseball and <laughs> Burlington Bees baseball and Colorado Springs Sky Sox baseball. The game is the same, and that was it. John Rooney told me, Matt, this is a big deal, but don't make it a bigger deal than it is. The game is what's in front of you. It's the same game. Yeah. I know the stories about Mr. Buck. People would come in with a bunch of notes, and he'd take them from him and say, just tell the people what you see, son. So, again, good job. Very proud of you. Hopefully you'll do it more in the future. Quick break. Right back with uh, Mickey Dolan from the Monkees. Welcome back, guys. DGS on X. So very excited to uh, talk to my next guest, Mickey Dolans. Of course, everyone knows Mickey Dolans from the Monkees. Going to be in town at the Family Arena on October 13th, an evening with Mickey Dolans. Mickey, pleasure to meet you. Thanks for spending a few minutes with us. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time. Yeah, looking forward to it. I love that area. I love 
St. Charles, and I love the family arena. It's a great, great venue. Yeah, I know you and Tom O'Keefe have been friends for a long time. Uh, so let me get the gushy stuff out of the way. So I was born in 64, just about the time you were getting your start with the band. And uh, I have been a, lo- a lifelong musician, a drummer, a singer, still do it. And while every drummer has Ringo DNA, you were really the impetus for me watching the show. And those champagne sparkle Gretsch drums, and it ju- it was just magic to me. And my brother, who was eleven years older, was a guitarist, and I would sneak in his room and I would open up the guitar case and I would feel the wood and kind of smell the case, and I was just smitten. So, in a very real way, you had a very big impact on my life. So, thank you. Well, thank you. That was great. And what kind of kit do you play? Uh, I've owned a Champagne Sparkle Gretsch set like you. Uh, right now I have Ludwig Vista Lights. I'm sort of a purist. I'm an old school guy. I like old drums and old guitars and I guess just the classic recapturing my youth. Yeah, well, they sound different. You know, uh, they do. Sometimes the way they're constructed, especially guitars, but also drums, you know, you're absolutely right. I think more uh, care was used maybe, uh, and more um, uh, and more quality material, yeah. but it also made it more expensive uh, yeah. as the years went by, and so um, I think it I think it makes a difference. I really really do. So as a drummer, I'm fascinated. My understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you didn't actually play when you joined the band, and you were thrown into the deep end of the pool. And to the extent that you could, you you had to learn to play drums like on the job. Am I right? Well, more or less, but I just want to clarify one thing. Remember, The Monkees was not a band. It was a television show mm-hmm. about a band. And we were cast into the show like you'd cast a musical. And I played guitar. My audition piece was Johnny B. Good. Mm-hmm. I still play guitar. But I, I could read music, and I had months to learn. And <clears throat> I studied very, very hard. Um, but I, I sat down at Kits, you know, uh, when I was in my cover bands before the Monkees. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, remember that the Monkees was a TV show and I was cast as the wacky drummer. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, where do I start? Where do I start to, to learn? But I didn't have to learn everything. Yeah. I didn't have to learn every groove, every single uh, rhythm. I only had to learn what I had to learn. Yeah, uh, to play to play those songs, and you know they were great songs, which helped. You think of those songwriters, and I'll be doing all of them in the show, of course. Yeah, but I was so blessed to have these songwriters writing for me: uh, Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, Carol King, Neil Diamond, uh, Harry Nielsen, Paul Williams, Neil Sedaka. You know, these people don't write a lot of duff tunes. <laughs> and so and so it makes it easy for me as a singer. The toughest thing I've found, and I don't know if you sing when you play, mm-hmm. the toughest thing that i found playing, of course, is singing lead. It, um, it really is like, you know, patting your head and rubbing your yeah. stomach at the same, same time. Because as you know, as a drummer, the drummer is the clock of the band. And the um, the lead singer, your vocals float all over the place across bar lines and stuff like that. Not to get too technical, but yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. That was that was tough. And in the sixties, with no monitors, it was 
It was crazy. And you guys had the, you had the same problem that the Beatles had, which was you were being drowned out by the fans who were screaming for you, and even your amps weren't that big by today's standards. I mean, I, I've read many accounts from the Beatles talking about how frustrating it was and how eventually they just started kind of having fun with it. Uh, what was that like being in front of the audience at the very height of, like, the monkey craziness? Well, like that, like you just described, it was impossible to hear a thing. Um, uh, and like I say, there were no monitors and no click tracks, nothing like that. And the sound kept became bouncing off the back mm. wall of the arena. A couple of seconds later, I gave up trying to, to you know, to uh, you know, try to figure it out. I closed my eyes, which I still do now when mm. I play out of habit. And I started uh, setting the snare drum up right level with my leg because mm-hmm. I couldn't even hit, hear myself hitting the snare. Mm. And I would hit my leg because I could feel it. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my mm. rim shot was hitting my leg. I got a huge bruise oh, yeah. on my leg. And they, they made me a big, like, bandage uh, padding for my leg. <laughs> and then I would... I get the uh, tempo off of Mike's boot. Wow. We had it because he, he was in front, so he could hear uh, me and himself, of course, and Peter on bass. And remember, we were really a power trio. Davey mostly played tambourine and sang, of course. But uh, the, the, the band was really Nez on a 12-string, Peter on bass and sometimes keyboards, and me on drums. And Ness could hear it all, so he would tap his the heel of his boot, and I'd look at it like a a visual click track to try, to try to keep me in tempo because I couldn't hear a thing. That's amazing. I uh, I also play guitar, but not well at all. Not being self-deprecating, I just don't. I picked it up in fourth grade, and I never really got better. It never made sense to me. Like, the fingering and the scales never made sense. And the first time I sat down at a drum kit, uh, obviously it's much more physical, but the very first time I sat down, it made sense. Uh, but the 12-string, the Rickenbacker, the, you know. So Michael Nesmith always struck me, and, and obviously I, it, it, this isn't any sort of genius, uh, uh, just such an interesting, multi-layered, textured guy. Even during the oh show, boy. like not even after the oh show, boy, yeah. like even during the height of the shenanigans and the hijinks, you could see something in him that was special. Oh, absolutely, and that is obviously what the producers saw in him, and they, indeed in all of us. I mean, they must have. That's why we were cast, and the audition process was extensive, much more than your normal television show. Mm -hmm. It was singing and playing an instrument. You had to be able to sing and play uh, to get in the auditions. And then there was the acting. There was the screen tests uh, in the more traditional sense. But there was also interviews and improvisation. That was the thing that stood out to me as an actor that had been in, uh, in the business, even at that time, I'd already been in 10 years. Mm-hmm. I had my own series when I was a kid in the 50s called Circus Boy. But the improvisation thing was the thing that it kind of threw me at first. I was used to getting a script, reading the lines, going home, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, imp- you did not improvise. It was verboten. Um, 
And so that threw me, but I got better. Nez was great right from the start. He was just so good at the improvisation. But, yeah, that's what they must have seen. Well, they must have seen something in all four of us. Yeah. Well, Mickey, oh, boy, I'm going to let you go. I know you got other stuff to do, but it's been an absolute uh, privilege and pleasure speaking with you. Uh, once again, Mickey Dolans will be at the Family Arena, great venue on October 13th for an evening with Mickey Dolans. Next month, his book, I'm Told I Had a Good Time, is coming out. Mickey, thank you for the time. Thank you for the music. Thank you for everything, too. Um, and see you there at uh, and see you there at the uh, family arena. Thanks a lot. You bet. Bye, Mickey. Bye-bye. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. We all agree that reducing carbon emissions is a good thing. And once again, Toyota is leading the way. We hear a lot about fully electric vehicles, and Toyota has them, with more coming in. But we also know a BEV is not for everyone, whether it's because of cost, range, or concern about finding a charging station when you need it. Plus, the raw materials used to manufacture batteries are limited. Enter Beyond Zero, Toyota's vision for a carbon-neutral future in vehicles, and in manufacturing plants, too, in the years ahead. The materials used to make just one long-range battery for an EV could be used to make batteries for six plug-in hybrids or 90 gas-electric hybrids. That's why Toyota's position today is electrified, diversified, empowering you to choose how to reduce your own carbon footprint with the vehicle that's right for you, a hybrid, plug-in hybrid, or battery EV. So shop, learn more, and get details at toyota.com slash beyond zero. Toyota, let's go places. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.